I became a pastor the year after the Purpose Driven Life book came out. How many of you read that book? A lot of you. I've never read it, um, <laughs> but it, uh, it made me aware of Rick Warren and Saddleback Church uh, and just how massive it was and, and the extent of his ministry. And then I got a little bit farther into my own uh, pastoring, and I learned about Bill Hybels uh, and Willow Creek Church, and then Rob Bell and Mark Driscoll and Francis Chan, and on and on and on, uh, and these, these big names. And you may recognize some of these names, but the point really isn't the names. The point is that I saw these men, and I saw their ministries, and I saw their platforms, and it honestly it just blew my mind. Because I'd always grown up in smaller churches of less than 200 people. Living Word is the largest church I've ever regularly attended. But here these men had churches where they were seeing thousands of people weekly. And I saw their reach and how big their ministry was and how flashy and beautiful the services were. And so very early on, as I started as a pastor, I said to God, I said, God, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do big church and flashy and big platform and lots and lots of people worshiping God. That's what I'm going to do. So God, if you'll just get on board and bless it, that would be outstanding. Um, But that's what success meant to me at that time. And now let me tell you about uh, the three youth groups that I led during my time uh, as a pastor. My first youth group was extremely tight-knit. Uh, The kids that showed up, showed up faithfully every week, most of them on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, I knew their lives. I knew their friends. I was... I was literally four days older than one of the kids in the youth group. Um, So I knew their prayer requests and their families uh, and their struggles. And we were really, uh, really well connected. For three and a half years, I pastored that group, and it never grew larger than 13 students. So my question to myself is, is this success? And the answer was no. And I felt it. And then my second youth group was a church just outside of Bozeman, Montana, a little one-stoplight town called Belgrade, Montana. And my first time leading youth group there, we had about 30 students. My first time leading high school there, we had seven. And when I left two and a half years later, we regularly were seeing more than 40 a week in middle school, more than 40 a week in high school. For events we would have, I would have, uh, often have more than 100 students. I saw more students weekly than me- most of the churches in the area had people total. We were big. We thought big. We did big things. And for the most part, I knew everyone's name. For the most part, I realized when people were gone. I I had a little bit of a small group that I knew a a little better, but nothing close to the closeness that I had with my first youth group. And that was two and a half years of pastoring. And I would ask myself, was this success? And based on my definition, considering where I was in the country, yes, and I felt it, and I liked it. And then my third youth group was, uh, my third youth group was actually the one that I didn't want. Um, doesn't that sound bad? It's really true. It's true. Uh, I, I had left pastoring for a while and did not want to go back to it, uh, but you guys know how God is, uh, and he closed every other door except this one. And so there I was with this group of about 12 kids that was both the middle school and the high school together, varying ages, varying backgrounds, way different friend groups would come together, uh, and we would do youth group. And I remember just looking out at these 12 kids and just wondering, how am I going to get you people to my vision of success? And I'll tell you, after a few months, 
uh, I concluded that I wasn't, that this group was not going to hit my definition of success, and I felt it. For two years, I prayed to be delivered. And during that time, the kids were faithful. The volunteers were faithful. I knew how to be a pastor. I knew how to teach the Bible. And I slotted into that role just like I was paid to. Uh, And if you know pastoring at all, you don't want them to do it because they're paid to do it. Uh, Personally, I wanted out. And I remember praying something uh, along the lines of this. I remember praying, God, if you are going to stick me here, and if you are going to insist on this, then I need you to change my heart and I need you to help me love this. Uh, And in some stories, this is where they talk about the miracle change that happened. That's not mine, Uh, not at all. Uh, Very gradually over at least the next year, I found my heart changing. Uh, And then in the three plus years that followed that, as I continued to grow, the group grew with me. And upon my release from this ministry, after seven years, we had gone from 12 students to about 30. And was that success? Based on my original definition, I would would say no. But when God released me from that group, I walked away from them feeling the most successful that I'd ever felt. And the question then is, what is the measure of success for a believer? How do we know we're on the right track? And today, Jesus is going to make that very, very clear. A lot happens in the Bible between the final two truly, truly statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, Last week, Pastor Roosevelt preached out of John chapter 16. Today, I'm going to preach out of John chapter 21. Uh, And some big things happen. Some major events that set the stage for today's chapter happen in between 16 and 21. John chapter 17 is Jesus' famous prayer for himself, his disciples, and all future believers. John 18 is the narrative of Jesus' arrest. It's Peter's three denials. It's Jesus' trial before Pilate. John 19, Jesus is sentenced to death. He's crucified. He dies. It is finished. He is buried. And then finally, John chapter 20 records Jesus' resurrection and early appearances to his followers. I think we can agree that the events of those chapters are important. And so if you're new to the faith, if you're unsure what those are or what happened in those, or if you simply have not read these chapters during this series, then I want to take my opportunity, since it's been six weeks since I could do this, to invoke my full authority as a high school teacher and tell you that you have homework, okay? Uh, Our text for the day, John chapter 21, uh, which of course comes after everything I just mentioned, uh, begins this way. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I really wish that we could spend a lot of time talking about this because Jesus is accomplishing a lot of things with this breakfast. Uh, But we're going to have to content ourselves with a focus on Peter. Jesus has a plan for Peter today, and this specific miracle is meant to grab specifically him. Countless times Peter has gone out fishing. After all, Peter was a fisherman. But only one other time in Peter's life has he experienced a miraculous catch of fish like this. In fact, in almost exactly the same miracle, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls Peter to follow him the first time. Well, Jesus is calling again. And post-denial from Peter, Peter's not going to miss his opportunity. So when he knows that it's Jesus, Peter dives into the water to get to Jesus. Peter wrestles the nets ashore. He gets the fish when Jesus says, bring some. Peter is at Jesus's command. And now after this miracle, after a Jesus prepared and served breakfast, Peter is going to get his command. And here it comes in verses 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Have you ever noticed that Peter doesn't appeal to anything he has done or accomplished in his life to prove his love for Jesus? I mean, what what would he point to? What would matter in this moment? What would overcome his sin and his denials of Jesus? Nothing. And I believe that he has learned this. And so he simply appeals to the love that Jesus knows is there. And I want you to see this because what grace to us and what grace to Peter that Jesus does not look for a resume of deeds when he calls someone to follow him. He doesn't bring up Peter's denials. He doesn't ask for evidence to balance the weight of them. Jesus doesn't ask Peter to provide testimony that overcomes his need for the cross. No, Jesus simply accepts the love that he knows and that Peter declares is there. You know that I love you. Okay. And now having accepted this, Jesus is going to give him a job. Metaphorically, Peter's gonna do sheep stuff, but what is the actual job? Verses 18 and 19. 
And here's our very truly statement for the day. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. You may know that uh, Peter was killed by crucifixion. There are a variety of sources that confirm this. But what I want you to know this morning is that Peter would have understood from what Jesus just said to him that crucifixion was coming. He would have known it on this day. The phrase translated as stretch out your hands was a phrase from their time describing crucifixion. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and go where you do not want to go. Jesus is telling Peter in no uncertain terms that following him will lead to crucifixion. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, this is going to kill you just like it did me. Follow me. And now our question What is the measure of Peter's success as a believer moving toward crucifixion? What is Peter's job? Well, Jesus just told him, follow me. The measure of success is following Jesus. Friends, what do Christians do? What is our job? We follow Jesus. That's the measure. And our end may not be as clear as Peter's is, but the job isn't different. I can't even imagine Peter's state of mind upon hearing this, to hear from Jesus, hey, welcome back to the group. You're going to die horribly. Let's go. (laughs) That is a lot to take in right after breakfast. Uh, But here's what I do understand. I don't understand necessarily what Peter's thinking, but what I absolutely understand, because I did the same thing when I was called to follow Jesus, I understand what comes out of Peter's mouth next. Here it is in verses 20 through 22. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. See, I read this and my first thought is, Peter, you just got told to follow Jesus the earthly end of which is a cross. And your first question is, what about John? It's what John gets. Like, and I find myself wanting to be harsh in response to this, but I stop when I hear my harshness echo back at me. Because the first thing I did when Jesus called me was not to follow him. The first thing I did was look around just like Peter. I looked around to see what others had. And instead of following Jesus, I said, What about him? I want that. I want what he has. I want that in my life. But what Jesus was going to accomplish with John had nothing to do with what Jesus was going to accomplish with Peter. What about him? What is that to you? You follow me. You, Peter, follow me until you get to the cross that I very truly told you about. Don't worry about him. You follow me. And too often, Too often, as believers, in all of the arenas we travel in our lives personally, professionally, in our families, in our homes, we focus on what others have that we want or what others don't have that we have to deal with. And that distracts us from following Jesus. Be wiser than I was. And hear Jesus say, what is that to you? You follow 
me. Just as Jesus individually calls Peter here to serve him, he calls each of us as well. And for each of us, he has unique giftings and, and a unique plan. Don't try to replicate someone else's life because it looks good to you. Don't try to replicate their talents or their gifts or their successes or their joys. Don't waste your time wondering what Jesus has for others when he has so much for you. You follow him. Look at it this way. The parable of the sower. Probably Jesus' most famous parable. It begins this way. It begins with this. A farmer scatters seed on the ground. And some of that seed falls on the path. Some of it falls on rocky soil, some among thorns, and some on good soil. We don't have time to talk about all of those different soils, but I do want to talk about the good soil and the thorns and how it relates to what we're talking about today. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 22 and 23, Jesus elaborates. He says this, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 100, 60, or 30 times what was sown. I think it goes without saying that Jesus wants all of us to be seeds falling on good soil. He wants high-yield followers. But here's the fact, though, and you know this from your own life. Some seed yields more than others. It's just simply how nature works. And so we, among the good soil, we are getting the same nutrients. We're understanding and receiving the same word. But some seeds just yield differently. And here comes where the problem is. When we start worrying about our 30 versus someone else's 60, that's a worry of this world. And it gets thorny real quick. Do we really want to choke out because Jesus only multiplied us 30 times when someone else got 60? Do we want kingdom yields to decrease because our focus is on our multiple instead of on Jesus? There's 60 versus your three. What is that to you? You follow. That's your job. Your job is to yield for Jesus. And what does that mean? What is a high yield follower? It's simply this. It is a person who, followed Je who follows Jesus and accomplishes that which Jesus has laid before them. That's it. And for some people, it's the ones that maybe you're probably thinking of. It's the pastor with the really high profile and the big ministry that leads tons of people to Jesus. It's the theologian like Luther or Calvin or Stronstad. It's some of those people. But here's what it, I think it is more often than not. It's my friend that I knew in Montana named Doug, who was a plumber and he loved Jesus, and everyone knew it. It's a high-yield follower of Jesus. It's a soldier, or it's a teacher, or it's whatever that goes to do whatever Jesus has called them to do and takes every opportunity they have to talk about and demonstrate the love of Jesus to the people that are in their lives. That's a high-yield follower. And for some people, what this means is that they're, they're going to quietly serve the world and the body of believers in ways that will never be acknowledged this side of heaven because no one will ever see them but the Lord. The yield of God's people, both in type and multiple, is as varied as God's people because it is determined by the unique plans of God for each of our lives. So regardless of whether you are a multiple of 30, 60, or 100, regardless of what your yield looks like, 
You follow Jesus. That is your job. And my, and my concern is this. It's, it's that we can not only not accomplish, but we can also not rejoice in the work of Jesus around us and through us when our focus is on what someone else has more than it is on what Jesus has for us. Friends, following Jesus for a believer is all there is. That's the job. Anything else pulls us out of the good soil. And, and that's what I came to realize in, in my last youth group. The platform, the crowds, the flashiness, that was all my pride. That was all about me. I felt like I had 30, if that. And those famous pastors, they had the 100 that I wanted. But I'm not Rick Warren. And I'm not Matt Chandler. I'm not Francis Chan. And giving up the desire for what they had in order to actually follow Jesus is the change the Holy Spirit brought about in my life. And I can tell you what it was, was freedom. Because when it occurred, I found that I was more able to engage what God put right in front of me. And I was able to realize just how great it was. Those youth, those volunteers in that church that I never wanted, they were amazing. And more importantly, ministering to them is where I was supposed to follow Jesus. That is where I was to yield, and I mean that in both senses of the word. Yield to what Jesus willed for my life, but also yield in terms of bearing fruit. Worship team, come on up. It is estimated that for three decades after Peter's conversation with Jesus, Peter continued to follow him knowing how his life would end, knowing that his end was a cross, still he followed all the way to his cross and straight into heaven. Fellow Jesus followers, we are going to get there. But there is a road before each of us. You are on your road and I am on mine. And it is our job to follow Jesus on the road he has placed each of us on. My road has nothing for you and yours has nothing for me. You follow Jesus on your road because that's your job. And following Jesus is everything. Friends, be free today from comparing. Be free from trying to replicate. Be free from worry about what Jesus is doing with others. What is that to you? You follow him simply and wholeheartedly. Devote yourself to what Jesus is doing with you and you follow him. He will lead you to whatever your yield is and ultimately to eternity. You follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly God, Father, what, what an honor, what grace, what love it is to know that I can preach this message and know that on all of our different roads, you are there. On all of our different roads, there is a Jesus to follow and you love us. And just as you said, you are the way, the truth, and the life that is true for each of us and is available to each of us. So God, give us the courage and the strength and the willingness to walk with you along our road, not looking at somebody else's successes or desires, but eyes on you, looking at what you have for us so we can be high-yield followers of you, not choked out by the worries of this world, but multiplying 30, 60, or 100 times whatever your will is for us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
and we thank you that you are there. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.